All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to what will be our last study in 2 Samuel and our first study in 1 Kings as we transition from uh, this document, 1 and 2 Samuel, again, artificially separated, really ought to be considered as one whole. And then we'll launch into 1 and 2 Kings and uh, see similarities there in terms of construction. Before we begin, let's have our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We left off in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, and we had been introduced to this idea of David's census. And we are told, not here in 2 Samuel, uh, but rather in 1 Chronicles, that this is inspired by the devil. God permits this, God allows this, um, and inspired by the devil, David does a census. Now, of course, what's behind the census is this idea of, let's, let's see how powerful we are. I think I likened it to an individual flexing in the mirror, you know, or... or an attractive lady taking a selfie, you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing, like, let's see how great and amazing we are here. And so that's what David's doing, and, and obviously um, this, this grieves the Lord, and uh, maybe for the sake of it, we left off at chapter, or yeah, chapter 24, verse 14. For the sake of it, let's pick up at verse 10, and let's see the Lord's judgment on David's sin, how this goes. So David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, which in passing I always find just so familiar that oftentimes your conscience is asleep while you're, you know, doing the stupid thing and only afterward does it wake up and trouble you. Like, what were you doing? And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. How familiar. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So here's a great confession of sins, categorically different than those we saw from Saul. Verse 11, And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So this is like a good parent. Um, as the child gets older, you know, you pick your punishment. <laughs> this, that, or the other. Uh, very interesting. So, you know, interesting because after David's confession, what's implied here is God's forgiveness. What's implied here is God's forgiveness. And yet there's going to be a temporal consequence. So, you know, here's an example where, where forgiveness is simply understood and... Uh, a temporal consequence is laid out, all right? So you have three different options. Um, verse 13, where we left off, uh, chapter 24, verse 13 of 2 Samuel. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be 
three days pestilence in your land. Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So these are the three options, three years of famine, three months of fleeing from human enemies, or three days pestilence. Interesting the connection, three, three years, three months, three days. Verse 14, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So this is a, a beautiful statement on the part of David. God is more merciful than man. David knows that and believes that, and he'd rather fall into God's hands than man's hands, which is so beautiful, so beautiful. Here in this life, as we live in peril, we're in man's hand. Um, we're subject to the courts, subject to the corruption of the justice system, subject to the rulers and their godlessness, subject to their rulings. And, of course, we default and defer to the one true God, the one true ruler and judge of all, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we seek to serve him in all things. And if that means serving the civil authorities, so be it. If it means disobeying the civil authorities, so be it. Um, even if we incur their judgment, so what? We have the commendation of Jesus. Far better to have their condemnation and the Lord's approval than to have their approval and the Lord's condemnation. So, uh, so here let us fall into the hand of the Lord, then David says. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. So this is option three, the three-day pestilence, and this takes out 70,000 men in three days, so it is you know, a significant pestilence. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. As we saw, for example, in the final plague uh, prior to the exodus, God's judgment is executed upon the firstborn sons that do not have the blood of the lamb covering the door by the hand of an angel. And so we see God doing this throughout the scriptures. Of course, those of you studying along on Sunday mornings with Revelation, we see God executing judgment through angels. And here in 2 Samuel, no different. This pestilence of whatever it concretely consists uh, is being ministered through the hand of an angel. Um, here, the angel of the Lord, it's an interesting usage, and an argument could be made that this angel of the Lord is Jesus himself executing this judgment. Wherever you have um, this construction of the angel of the Lord, um, it's worth pondering as to whether that might be the, the case. All right. Uh, then just the latter half of verse 16, And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So this is, this is very interesting, of course, um, that David sees the angel and intercedes on behalf of the people 
whom he calls sheep. So once more, in closing, we're reminded of David the shepherd king, and here we see him prefiguring Christ, the good shepherd and true king, the shepherd king, who will stand between the judgment of God, the just wrath on account of our sins, who will stand uh, in, in our place as mediator between us and God, and will, uh, will, will um, bear our sins. Here David says, I have, I have sinned. Um, Christ on the cross says effectively the same thing. Because I have taken all their sins upon me, these are my sins. I have sinned. Not that he has sinned actually in his person, but you see he becomes the sinner uh, by imputation. So these sheep, what have they done? And that's Christ's, Christ's plea that we would be forgiven. His reckoning us as innocent since he has taken our sin as his own. And then please let your hand be against me and my father's house. And so you, know, you can see how the hand of the Lord is against the son. And that's really the theology from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Okay, so David intercedes. And now this is, um, yeah, this is a really interesting geographical connection. Verse 18, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. One thing I wanted to just check. Yeah, we're not given any much. Uh, we're not given much more information in any of the cross-reference sections in the Bible on this Aruna figure. But anyway, it's a little bit beside the point. The point is the location of this threshing floor, and we'll see that uh, come out here. So, verse 19. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded, and when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him, and Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, the key here, the study note points out in verse 25, built there an altar. This altar was built where Solomon's temple would later be built. Okay, so the connection is that this is um, Mount Calvary. This is where Solomon's temple is built, where um, 
adjacent to, uh, well, no, I mean, excuse me, it's where Jerusalem is, so where Solomon's temple is, and then, of course, Solomon's temple is destroyed in 586, and then it's rebuilt by Herod, but we are on the mount where the crucifixion takes place. So you have, you have again, these, this kind of subtle foreshadowing where, where David longs to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord says, no, uh, I will build a house for you. And yet David is allowed to build this altar in the place where the temple will be built by Solomon, his son. And you have David here interceding on behalf of the people um, and... Uh, stopping the plague, stopping the curse of God by his sacrifice. And of course, all of that shows us, shows forth Christ who on the mountain um, will offer the sacrifice of himself and the wrath of God will be put away for all who trust in, in Christ. So this is, um, this is a marvelous, wonderful, and Christ-centered way of finishing out uh, the, the books of 2 Samuel. And again, really the the books of First and Second Samuel are the same document. So we finish out we finish out this this entire thing. It's it's amazing too, and I don't want to get too caught up in the literary details, but you you have um, you have First Samuel beginning with I mean really the first major event is is Hannah uh, praying before the altar of the Lord, and it ends with David before the altar of the Lord. And again, the themes of the, the lowly being lifted up and the, the lifted up and exalted being cast down. Um, David, at the top of his reign, at the top of his kingdom, has a census, is instantly cast down, um, is at the end instantly raised up as he uh, you know, acts in, a, in the role of a mediator and savior of the people, offering the sacrifice on what will be the sacrifice of uh, the cross, that same place, the same locale. All right, well, that brings, um, that brings this document to its conclusion. Any, any thoughts or questions you have before we, uh, we call it a day? Well, I don't know. I feel like I should say something in summary, but you've heard me each week in and out on this. Um, I'll simply say that the one, the one reflection I walk away from with First and Second Samuel is how intentionally reflective the author or authors want us to be and call us to be. So that the text, which again in our minds, or at least in my mind, often presents itself as history or historical narrative or just the story of, you know, the events leading up to David's life and David's life just A, B, C, D. Uh, the document is much more complex than that, isn't it? It really, many, many of the episodes, if you will, are left unresolved are left with a subtle kind of question, are left with a, a sense of meditation. Why did the Lord act kindly here and uh, more strictly there? Same thing with David and um, certain exceptions to the rule and things that don't quite fit. We've found many of those things, many examples of that in, in second, uh, first and second Samuel. So it, it's a great invitation to reread and to read slowly and ponderously through this text. All right, if there is nothing further, then let's just flip the page, and we will go right into First and Second Kings, which has very good uh, continuity um, 
you know, if you just flip to chapter one, we'll do some preliminary stuff, but if you just flip to chapter one and look at the headings for a sense of where we're going, you'll see the first heading of chapter one, David in his old age. Unfortunately, there's yet another rebellion. Yet another one wants to take David's place, Adajona. So that has to be dealt with. Um, but then it moves, it moves um, from David into Solomon. David, of course, gives instructions to Solomon. Um, Solomon's reign, yeah, David dies. Solomon's reign is established. And, and we really are in, you know, we continue with the golden age of Israel in terms of uh, being an earthly, earthly kingdom. So just to give you a sense for the continuity and where we're going to be heading. Now, if you flip back, if you are in a Lutheran study Bible, flip back to page 526. And uh, if you're listening along online and you're not a Lutheran, um, get a Lutheran study Bible anyway. <laughs> the notes are great. They really are. Um, they, they're very, very helpful, uh, as objective as I can be. Obviously, I'm a Lutheran pastor, but as objective as I can be, it's a wonderful resource and uh, very trustworthy, and um, you can't go wrong. One of the helpful and valuable things in uh, this version is if you look at the top, it always gives you at the start of the books, if you look at the top of page 526, it always gives you a timeline, a rough timeline to uh, figure things out. And, it, and if, I could suggest, if I could suggest something to you... Um, it is overly, overly simplified, uh, but there are some key chronological benchmarks we can fairly easily memorize, and we can have just, wherever we are in the scriptures, we can have a basic sense for, well, it must be in this period, at least within a few hundred years, maybe even 500 years, but it's better than nothing. Uh, one of those, for example, is I think the technical dates for Abraham are somewhere around uh, 2100 um, B.C., but if you just round that off, that's all we're doing. We're just creating a tool in our mind to use for our own personal use. If you just round that up to 2,000, you can think of Abraham in 2,000. Similarly, it's a little off, but generally speaking, uh, Moses is 1,500. So 1,500 BC. So Abraham, 2,000. Moses, 1,500. Roughly speaking, David is 1,000. David is 1,000. So see, we're moving in 500-year markers. And uh, from the time that, uh, of the reign of David to the time where Solomon's temple is destroyed, his temple is destroyed in 586. But again, if you just sort of round to the 500, you've got yet another marker and another 500 and you're at Christ. So that can, that can function as a really rudimentary, really basic, just sort of mental framework. If you're like me, you, you need these crutches. I don't have a very detailed chronological mind to keep all these things in track. Engineering was not my calling. Um, but, but it helps and suffices a very ba basic framework. So then if you look at uh, 526 up at the top, you see the death of King David is at 970. So rounded off, David is around 1000 BC. Um, of course, after the death of King David, you have the reign of Solomon. And the next point you see there on your timeline is that Israel is divided under Rehoboam. So thus begins the divided kingdom between the northern ten tribes and the southern two. Uh, there are lots of confusing names, and we'll get into some of that. Those of you who went through the Minor Prophets with me remember this. 
because the ten northern tribes have a collection of different names, and the southern tribes have a lesser collection, but still a collection of names. Generally speaking, um, from the time of the divided kingdom on, I think it's the case that you find the northern tribes referred to as Israel and the southern tribes referred to as Judah. That's very common. All right, you can see after the 931 BC marker where Israel becomes a, you know, Israel in the whole sense becomes a divided kingdom. The next major marker is the event I mentioned before, 587. Uh, I learned it as 586, who knows what it is, 587, 586, somewhere in there. Uh, you have the Babylonians taking Jerusalem and the temple destroyed. Okay. What you see next is 560, so roughly 27 years after uh, Solomon's temple is destroyed, first and second kings are written. So that's a, that's a lengthy way of looking back, um, but, but that's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of historical perspective there, let's put it that way, um, when the author of first and second kings pens it. As you can see then, um, not terribly long after first and second kings is written, what would it be, another 22 years, you have the final point on your timeline, 538 BC, Cyrus de uh, decrees that exiles may return to Judah. And Cyrus is a particularly interesting figure because he's a thoroughly pagan guy, thoroughly pagan guy, but the Lord prophesies in advance that he's going to use Cyrus to let the people go and rebuild the temple, and Cyrus is, in many respects, himself going to be a type and foreshadowing of Christ, even though Cyrus is a complete pagan. There were, some, uh, there, there were some parallels drawn, you know, again, your mileage may vary, but some parallels drawn between President Trump and his support of the church and Cyrus and his support of the ancient people of Israel. I think the connections are fairly weak, but what you can see is you can see, you know, again, Trump superficially isn't your model Christian to say the least. Uh, but he was, he did preserve, you know, give four years of preservation for the church here in America. Cyrus does a similar thing where he favors God's people and gives them uh, many more than four years, but years of blessing. So it just goes to show that God can use anyone as a Messiah type figure, even a, even a complete pagan like Cyrus. Okay, so then that gives us a sense for when First uh, and Second Kings is written. Um, and also it gives us a sense for the period of history that is its subject or its focus, which, you know, again, would be some 400 years or so uh, earlier. Okay. Yes? So, if I remember correctly, although I don't know, Cyrus and uh, Persia overcomes the Babylonians. Yes, I believe that's right. Mm-hmm. So if First and Second Kings is written in 560, uh, Solomon is king in there. Why would the Babylonians have not? Because they were in Jerusalem. How would Solomon? How would a king be present before Cyrus allowed it? Well, I'm not sure I exactly understand the question. I'm not uh, but okay, so so where you're going to put Solomon is at the death of at the death of King David 970, 
that you're going to have the reign of Solomon beginning shortly thereafter. Oh, okay. So Solomon's going to be, you know, dead and gone um, for some 400-ish years it? until it's written. Yeah, oh. yeah. Um, and then First and Second Kings appears to be written. And I mean, if it's in 560, it's really in that period that would be called the Babylonian uh, captivity. If you, look, if you look at the left-hand column in, where it says overview, you'll notice that we don't know who the author is. That was true also for First and Second Samuel. We don't know who the author or authors are, um, and we don't know who the author is here. Um, it's unknown. And then the date, the history ranges from the last years of David to the composition of the book, 560 B.C. Uh, I, but, I mean, generally speaking, again, the Lutheran Study Bible is very conservative. Um, I mean, it's not going to skew things. It's not going to be dishonest, but it's very conservative. So if it sees 560 as... Um, when it's written, or 560, at least as the conclusion to the writing, uh, I, there's, there's good reason to trust that. There's good reason to trust that. At least that that's the best information we have right now. But that's during the time of captivity. Uh, that would be during the time of captivity, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as you mentioned, it goes from the Babylonians to the Persians, and then I, I can't remember all the Seleucids all the way up to the Romans. I can't, I'm skipping Alexander the Great's in there. Um, there's a number of there's a number of folks that that hold the the political power and control of that region um, up until Christ and the Romans. Okay, so uh, just by way of introduction, let's read the section Luther on First and Second Kings, and then um, I'll see if there are any questions or comments that you have. Otherwise, we'll we'll just take a glance at the outline and history, and then we'll get into the text itself. So, Luther on First and Second Kings. Elijah had killed the 800 prophets with great courage, 1 Kings 19, and no one's power was so great that he feared it. But when Jezebel threatened him, he is struck with such fear that he flees. Before this, he was not afraid of the king. Now he runs away from a woman. Accordingly, all this seems to be foolish, but it shows great understanding and is very helpful because it is recorded for the comfort of the churches in order that we may know how merciful God is. We may indeed be evil and weak, provided that we are not found among those who persecute, hate, and blaspheme God. God wants to have patience with our weakness. I am neither able nor willing to excuse the fathers, as others do. Indeed, I am glad to hear about the failings and the weaknesses of the saints. But I do not praise these failings and weaknesses as good deeds or virtues. Nor are these things recorded for the sake of the hard, the proud, and the obstinate. No, they are recorded in order that the nature of the kingdom of Christ may be pointed out. In his small flock, he has poor and weak consciences that are easily hurt and are not easily comforted. He is a king of the strong and the weak alike. He hates the proud and declares war on the strong. So a beautiful introduction. Of course, if you know anything about this period of time and this history, um, the remnant, as it were, gets very, very small. And uh, Luther's description is completely apt and points us in the right direction. Points us in the right direction, too, for our own times here in the West where we're seeing you know, the, the stars aligning for an increased persecution of the church. Already there's social 
persecution, to some degree legal persecution going on already. Um, and if, I mean, God willing, he'll, he'll stop that, he'll stay that, he'll give us many more years of freedom to preach the gospel here. Um, if not, what we're going to see and have seen and would increasingly see is uh, the feebleness of churches, of pastors, of congregations, and our inability to stand, and at times uh, courageous and at times cowardly, and we'll see all of that. And um, we need to not lose heart because that's precisely the message of First and Second Kings: is look at the mess in terms of leadership and people and faithfulness, or rather lack thereof, and yet God still abides with his people, and God still cares for them, God still sustains a remnant, and that remnant right now is in heaven, and that's where we're all going to. So the goal is to be numbered with them, and little else matters. All right, if you flip over to page 528 and 529, I won't go through the outline in detail. You can see that it's quite a complex outline because it's simply and largely based on uh, the reigning of the kings here. Um, Of course, it begins with uh, David's reign ending and really ends with 2 Kings 25. You can see as the fall and captivity of Judah, so 587, 586. So the history of first and second kings the content of first and second kings while it begins with that with david in 970 it really progresses all the way through the divided kingdom to the point in which um, politically speaking neither israel or judah exist they're they're conquered people politically speaking okay Over to page 529 in the last of our introductory material. I won't do any of this at length. I'll simply read the top portion and then let you look at this table that's been provided. The kingdoms of Judah and Israel began as one kingdom under the rule of Saul, and his dates 1048 through 1009 BC. Uh, They were divided briefly when David reigned in Hebron. Uh, so so there's, uh, you remember that history from 2 Samuel where there's a brief divide in civil war. And Saul's son Ishbosheth, um, 109 to 108, there was the second uh, rebellion, reigned in Mahanaim. Some years after Ishbosheth was murdered by rivals, David became ruler of all Israel from Jerusalem. He subdued Israel's traditional enemies. David's son Solomon succeeded him and further expanded the kingdom, 970 to uh, 931. But Solomon's son Rehoboam did not manage the kingdom well, and it split into Judah and Israel, also called Ephraim in the Old Testament. Um, Yeah, Ephraim being the north. The chart below presents an overview of the kings of Judah and Israel, along with the prophets who served in these kingdoms. Overlapping dates within a kingdom indicate co-regencies, C-shaded areas. The uh, prophets whose names appear in italic have written books of scripture. Pious kings who introduced reforms are marked with an asterisk. How many asterisks do you see? (laughs) Not a lot, not a lot, not enough. 
Yeah, that's the problem. There is going to be a little bit of depression as we read this, <laughs> this book because it's not great. It's not great overall. Uh, yeah, the story of, un, of unfaithful man, of man even whom, whom God has called being unfaithful to him and God saving and enduring and abiding anyway in his faithfulness and mercy. So much to be learned here from that. Uh, this is complex, and I, I feel the need to remind you, <laughs> well, to remind you, this is, this is our low-effort Bible study. This is the, this is the Bible study that I, un- unfortunately, in the triage that is the pastoral life, I don't, have, you know, I don't have the time to put in as much as I maybe would for a Sunday morning study. And that's how this class has always been. You've put up with it well enough. But for those of you joining us online, you'll know that. All of that is a, is a way of prefacing. I'm not going to be an expert in who's ruling who, when, where, and what. If, if that's your gig, I commend you to uh, Google. Uh, <laughs> uh, or, or rather a good commentary. Uh, you can check and see if Concordia has anything on it. But um, I will not be able to, to piece together with any great detail these numbers, names, dates, etc. As you can see when you look at the chart, it is quite complex. The chart, of course, on page 529, you can see down the center column, it runs 10th century down to the 6th century. So that's the way that this chart is organized. And then you can see the prophets of Judah, the kings of Judah, the reigns in Judah on the left-hand side. And so that would be the southern kingdom. Then the northern kingdom, the reigns in Israel, kings of Israel, prophets of Israel on the right-hand side. So you can see, generally speaking, in a visual kind of way, who overlaps with who. Um, And then, as it pointed out, when you see guys with an asterisk, those were faithful kings. So the first of those you see in Judah is Asa. Boy, I'm sitting here looking. Do you see any asterisks in the north? I don't either. That's not good. That's not good. So um, if the kingdom divides after Saul, and Saul reigns to, what did we we say, Uh, 931. I'm sorry, Saul. Thank you. Thank you. I have a tendency to mess that up. So if I start doing that, <laughs> please, please call me out. Not Saul. Solomon. Solomon uh, reigns right up until, uh, what is it, 931. So if we do some quick math, the north is swept up by the Assyrians in uh, 722. So how long, does the, how long does the northern kingdom last under the divided monarchy? Roughly 200 years, roughly 200 years. So um, not even half the time, well, maybe roughly half the time, just depends on how you round, about half the time that Judah exists. So um, what else to point out? Yes, and of course, as, as we read, those who are in italics, or yeah, italics, um, those are the prophets so if you look at the if you look at the prophets, um, well, I guess you have the whole columns. Wait, what were the italic prophets? Oh, those that had written books of the Bible. Yeah. So so if you look at the prophets of Judah, there you can there you can see um, who's writing when and where. Of course, Obadiah that comes late in the Bible comes early in the history. So Obadiah is the first biblical. Uh, 
you know, author of a biblical book um, that you see there in the prophets of Judah. Um, also, of course, Isaiah stands out. You know, rounding up Isaiah is the 8th century. And uh, he stands out, of course, as, as one of the one of the, probably even the foundational prophet um, in terms of the written, not in terms maybe of, of his actual ministry, but in terms of what's written. The early church fathers looked at Isaiah and thought that it was an entire Bible, um, all in one book. It was the proto-New Testament, the New Testament before the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> and then just looking over at the prophets of Israel, you see that uh, it's pretty sparse. Pretty sparse. I mean, not only do they have less prophets, period, uh, but you have Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, it looks like, as the only biblical authors who are prophets of Israel. Now, there's some overlap. I mean, this is probably their origins. There's some overlap in terms of their ministries. Um, if you look down adjacent to the 7th century BC in the right-hand column, the Assyrians deported people from Galilee and Transjordan as early as 733 B.C. So that's the thing to keep in mind is that's not, it's not quite like, you know, some of our modern wars that can, that can ostensibly be over in an evening. I mean, by the time all the bombs have fallen, you know. Um, the, these, these things go on for years and years and in some cases decades. So the first, you know, that's what this is pointing out is it's not quite these neat categories that we have in our minds because as early as 733, um, folks are getting deported by the Assyrians. And then they crushed uh, Syria in 732 BC. Um, God permitted Assyria finally to destroy idolatrous Israel in 722 BC. Much of the Israelite population was deported and assimilated into Upper Mesopotamia. Assyria resettled other peoples in Israel. Okay. So sometimes when we refer to the, the lost you know, tribes or the lost northern tribes, the lost northern kingdom, that's why we say lost, because it just sort of disappears by getting assimilated into Assyria and other cultures. All right, and then just one more little bit here, down then adjacent on the right-hand side to the 6th century B.C. Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon in 605. And, of course, you have Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, right around here with Nebuchadnezzar. In 605 B.C., he deported Jehoiakim of Judah and others in 597 B.C., more deportations occurred in 587 B.C. after Jerusalem was destroyed. Other Judeans escaped to Egypt after further unrest, which resulted in a further deportation in 582 B.C. The Judeans lived in refugee colonies in the vicinity of Babylon and were not assimilated. In 539 B.C., Cyrus of Persia, we mentioned him earlier, triumphed over the Babylonians. In 538 BC, he approved the return of the Judeans to their homeland. And so that uh, there's the second temple being rebuilt right in that period. All right, well, that's all the introduction I had in mind. 
um, give us some, some historical background, major figures and events. All right, any questions, any thoughts, anything you want to add? All right, into the text we go. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king, and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Okay. Um, the study note, I think, is informative on this, if I recall. Yes, in verse 2, this was, it describes it as accepted practice of supplying warmth to a person with poor circulation. The mention of David's ebbing vitality introduces the account of the two contenders for the throne. All right, so this was apparently a socially acceptable, acceptable thing. Uh, not so much today. <laughs> not so much today. <laughs> All right, verse 5. Now, added, Adon, oh my gosh. Adonijah, thank you. <laughs> That's not a good start. That's an easy one. <laughs> no, Adon. No, Adon. Oh, no, that's worse. That's worse. Adonijah. That's what we're doing. Adonijah. Trying to stick with it. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, "I will be king." And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. Uh-oh, see, this isn't good. Whenever we hear of handsome men, it tends not to go well for them. Yeah, Saul was handsome, Absalom was handsome, and Adonijah is handsome. All right. He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. I think uh, if you look down at verses 5 and 6 in the study notes, these are both some helpful observations. Verse 5, apparently the oldest surviving son of David. That's Adonijah. Uh, he either did not know or disregarded David's choice of a successor. His political intrigue is similar to Absalom's conspiracy, except without force. He, like Absalom, was handsome and pampered. <laughs> uh, and then verse 6, verse 6, uh, the study note has this observation. David succeeded as a warrior and king, but not as a father. Ooh having spoiled his son. Maybe we should put sons there. David's firstborn, Amnon, had been killed by Absalom, the third oldest, who likewise had died a violent death. Presumably the second in line was also dead, and there's references there. So it comes down to uh, Adonijah. 
Okay, verse 7. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adidon, Adid, I can't believe this. I have never stumbled on this name, ever, ever. Literally, this is one of the easier ones. And now I've got this mental glitch. Adonijah, I've heard that before. What am I? I don't. I'm so confused on this thing. This is terrible. This is this is the early onset of old age. No, I've got that. Adonijah, Adonijah. All right. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shemai and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed... I mean, that means he doesn't stand a chance, really. Those are the major players. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone. Hmm, interesting detail. Which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Yeah, again, I don't want to read too much into it, but with our typology in mind, and David as the anointed one figuring Christ, and you have uh, Adonijah, uh, this kind of... uh, Judas-type figure, this anti-Christ, anti-anointed one-type figure, and where is his meeting happening but at the serpent stone? I mean, you know, yeah. So we've got all of this kind of symbolism, rich symbolism and foreshadowing here. (laughs) All right. Um, Verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me? And he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So very interesting that Nathan is here involved because Nathan, of course, was involved with David and Bathsheba at their original sin. And and here he is uh, many years later. Verse 15, so Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, 
but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. All right, so now we see the import of Adonijah sacrificing the sheep, oxen, fattened calf, etc. He's throwing a giant party for himself and for his coronation that he can be formally recognized, shore up these uh, political alliances, um, and then reign after his father David. Obviously, then, Solomon would be perceived as a rival, and so Bathsheba's right that, he, that she and her son would be counted as offenders. Verse 22, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live king Ad Adonijah. Unbelievable. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord, the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the king, uh, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the King, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David.
So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Um, just pause there and put your, put your finger on uh, verse 39. Of course, you have, you have the import of David's son who reigns or rules as a picture and a type of Christ back in 2 Samuel when David wanted to build the house for God and God said, no, I'm going to establish your household and your throne forever. Um, that obviously in immediate historic context is Solomon, but in its final and fullest fulfillment is Christ. And so Solomon is immediately a type of Christ as the son of David, as the one who rules. So that's what's going on. You see, the, you see some connection here too with the riding of the mule. And uh, yeah, you remember the Lord Jesus riding into Jerusalem on, on the donkey. And so there are some similar uh, aspects here, some imagery. Um, a mule is not by any stretch of the imagination a war horse. Even, even in immediate context, it shows a kind of humility, a, a kind of realization that the king is a servant, that God is the true ruler of the people. And so he's riding on a mule. And of course, that all the more true when we talk about Christ coming in humility and, and reigning on the cross as opposed to in any earthly manner. All right, so then where we left off, uh, verse 39. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And again, in the language of the anointed one, this is Messiah language, Christ language. So we're seeing that and we're realizing that this is foreshadowing of the one who is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, our Lord Jesus. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. That's an interesting expression. Uh, the, the study note says that this is hyperbole, and that probably makes the most sense here. That there wasn't actually an earthquake that accompanied this or was caused by it. Verse 41 Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in this city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. So you see again how that is symbolic for uh, being, the, being the king riding on the mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from their rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord King David, saying, 
May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. What a beautiful picture of succession and humility on the part of David in old age to pass the torch on and uh, give thanks to God. Verse 49, Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. Yeah, that was kind of a buzzkill. <laughs> the, the party was over. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Yeah, this is a, this is a really interesting occurrence. So I want to... If you, look at the, if you look at the study note in verse 50, one guilty of unintentional manslaughter could flee for refuge to the altar. You can look at Exodus 21, 12 through 13 for this. Apparently, this applied to other crimes punishable by death. So, again, we don't really know, but that's apparently why he runs and grabs hold of the horns of the altar. And he says, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. We played a game like this as we were kids. You know, as long as you're, as long as you're like touching the couch, you're safe. As soon as you get off the, <laughs> the couch, somebody can get you. Yeah, well, he's grabbing a hold of the thorns. He, he's not going to let go until he has, a, you know, a, a confirmation that he's not going to be hurt. Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. So this, as Solomon's first act as king, shows the same kind of mercy and compassion that David had. It's really a remarkable thing, as we'll see. It may not seem remarkable at this point, but as we go through verses <laughs> and Kings, we will see how sweet this verse is, uh, how sweet this action of Solomon truly is. All right, that brings us to the close of chapter 1 and, and the close of our time. We will uh, be off next week due to Thanksgiving, uh, so we will meet in two weeks and we'll do 1 Kings chapter 2. The Lord be with you. <laughs>